Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us today. We are coming to you live from Lake Area Technical Institute in Watertown, South Dakota. Just wrapped up a collegiate agronomy workshop. What we're going to be doing during our show today is just getting questions primarily from students uh, here at Lake Erie Tech. And there are, I think, some other you know, uh, institutions represented as well today. And we've got a few farmers in the audience, too. But we do these agronomy workshops, these collegiate agronomy workshops, for a couple reasons. Number one, we want to give away some college scholarships. So we're going to do that later on in the show here. And then the other reason is it's just a lot of outreach. Our, our future in agriculture is really, really bright. And we just want to make sure that we are doing everything we can to provide some good information to all those who are going into agriculture when they get done with their schooling. So all right, let's what, take it. Let's see. Yeah, so what we're going to do here with, with these questions, uh, we'll come around to you with the mic. And again, just raise your hand and, and we'll come around to you. We've got a couple of mics here. And if you could, just give us your first name and maybe where you're from, at least the state that you're from from, where your home farm is at, uh, or wherever you came from, that would be great. We'd appreciate it. So anyway, go ahead. Um, I'm Jane Raisler from Albert, South Dakota. I was just wondering, with soil testing, do you do that every year or every few years? Yeah, it really depends on the operation and what's happening out there. Let's say that we've got a soil that we've got built up, we've got everything in great balance, we've got a really good handle on everything. We might do that one every few years. But a lot of fields, we see variability out in the field, and we're trying to fix that through variable rate fertilizer applications and just management practices on the farm. In those cases where we're trying to make big changes, we're going to soil test that thing every year. The other thing that I would say is when we get a new piece of ground, we start off with really small grids or small zones out in the field because we want to try and get a handle where the problems are at and especially things like soil pH problems. If we've got to do some liming, we don't want to put lime on in the wrong spots. We want to make the best use of our money, be very efficient with our applications and put it just where needed. So in those cases, yeah, we'd sample every year. Yeah, there are a lot of people that do not sample very often. And like we had, had talked about earlier today, we just said, okay, like with soybeans and people take this soybean credit for nitrogen, you can't really do that because that's a guess. I don't like guessing when you start talking thousands and thousands of dollars we're going to spend on fertility. So if we have some more data, and yeah, you don't have to sample every year, and you don't have to test every year, but you've got to test on a regular basis, otherwise it's hard to know what's really going on. Yeah, and a good, a good little uh, thing, too, is if you're getting recommended, hey, let's apply the exact same blend of fertilizer on every acre on the farm, something's wrong. That's, that's just not going to be the case. You're not going to be doing the exact same thing on every acre if you want to be the most efficient with what you're doing. All right, let's go to our next question. Uh, yep, right there. Go ahead, sir. Uh, my name is Mark Hamilton. I'm from Mulsey, South Dakota. Um, uh, Earlier in your presentation, you were talking about tiling and yep. how you incorporated, incorporated that on your farming operation. Yeah. Um, as far as cost goes, I was just wondering how long it took for that tiling to pay off on your farming operation. That's a great question and one you always need to ask about everything that you're doing on the farm. What will my return on investment be? Hey, I'm going to switch something on the farm. I'm going to use this product versus that. What's my return on investment? When it comes to tiling, it's a big expense. And let's just say at Woolsey, South Dakota, a piece of ground would cost $5,000 an acre. Tiling may cost anywhere from just a couple hundred bucks an acre to several thousand dollars, well, probably not several thousand, but maybe $1,500 an acre if you're going to pattern tile the farm out. So how quickly can you pay for, you know, hundreds of dollars per acre? It's going to vary. 
Uh, Brian's putting up an example right now. Here's a field of ours that we just put a little bit of tile out in the worst areas. Well, we took areas of the field that would yield zero on a year where we got way too much rain. Well, not quite zero, but they, they it, sure it wouldn't be very good. They would have yielded zero in 2019. No way. They would have probably yielded. I, I mean, oh, if it was okay. we, we, the, the field average, probably, I don't know, 230, 250, whatever. I mean, those spots might have yielded 100, 150, something like that. But here's the point. Okay, so if in a 75-acre field, like here, we only put in a mile and a half's worth of tile. We spent $100 an acre if you figured the whole 75 acres. It took us one year to pay for that tile. We had enough yield increase in one year to pay for it. The, the next example is where we did 13 miles of tile in 75 acres. Uh, that's probably a 10-year payback. So it, it, it will vary depending on what you're looking for. But a lot of times when we start talking Woolsey, we get to central South Dakota. Many people oh. aren't used to tile. They're not doing a lot of tile so where do they tile first the very very worst stuff it's the stuff that wasn't planted the stuff that's disaster the stuff that you know is it, it it's it got salt issues saline uh sodic and so usually you get fast response because you put it in the very worst areas and so i would expect uh most of the tile in that area if you're just doing the very worst spots to pay off in three to five years all right brian we're here at lake area tech we've got a lot of young men and women who hope to be running their own farm operation someday. And you mentioned, what ground are you going to pick up? What are you going to get? Well, a lot of times you get the junky ground. Well, that ground, uh, well, the good ground sold for 5000 This ground is going to sell for 2800 Huh, that's more in my price range, but I'm going to have to put a few hundred dollars worth of tile in. Probably going to have to spend a few hundred dollars on fertility over the years to build things up. When you can figure out how to do those things and how to improve that tough ground, a lot of times you can get a really good buy. Because all of a sudden with tile, yep. like you were mentioning, Brad, yep. you may be raising 200 bushel corn there on 100 bushel uh, APH type ground yep. in just a few years. Well, if you can do that, you can make some real money in a hurry. Yep. All right. Uh, next question was back there. Hi, I Hi. am Isabel Warner and I'm from Larchwood, Iowa. And I'm wondering what is the number one thing that I need to do as a producer in order to increase my corn yields? Ooh, <laughs> that's great. Uh, I think the thing we talked about today was understanding your soils and understanding what's going on out there. And it starts with soil testing. And I, I, I would love if you had a brand new field and you said, Darren, what do I do on this one? I'd say take one acre grid. So let's figure out what's going on in that soil. What do we need to add? Maybe you find out, oh my goodness, I have all kinds of phosphorus out here. I just need to add some N and some potassium and I'm going to be great. Well, that would be awesome. And we'd increase your profits. You wouldn't have to spend money where you don't need to. That's what I do with soil samples. Here's how we always rank things. Drainage is number one. So if tile needs to go in the ground, that's got to be first. That pays off the best. Next thing is fertility. But if you've got those two things taken care of, that's where we kind of move on to weed, insect, and disease control. Then we move on to variety selection, seed treatments, and kind of go from there. So, yeah, it really depends on the operation. But we're always talking drainage first, then fertility. But like Darren said, fertility is probably our answer. We'll be right back after this. Stay tuned. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Worried about glyphosate-resistant weeds and grasses in your corn? Unleash the power of new Impact Z herbicide and get the early post-application advantage you've been waiting for. Save $3 per acre when you combine Impact Z with a qualifying insecticide purchase. Go to buy2save3.com for details. Buy2save3 is a service mark and Impact Z is a trademark owned by Amvac Chemical Corporation. All rights reserved. Impact Z is a restricted-use pesticide. Always read and follow label instructions. 
What do you think of when you hear Palmer Amaranth or Water Hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, Fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like water hemp and Palmer Amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of Fierce Herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put Fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. Want to cut production costs without losing yield? Brian Ryberg from Buffalo Lake, Minnesota has done just that. Here's his story. We began using a soil warrior in our farm the fall of 2014. We've seen many benefits from better water infiltration, a lot less hours on equipment, fuel, able to reduce our fertilizer side. So it's really simplified our operation. See what makes Soil Warrior different and better at SoilWarrior.com. You need a powerful herbicide to fight the war on weeds. Bellum is Rotam North America's Mesotrion herbicide, and it fights against the annual broadleaf weeds attacking your cornfields. Winning this battle means higher yields, lower cost to you, and maximized profitability. For long-lasting residual weed control, check out Evinco, Vilify, and our newest mix, Rixa. For application, flexibility, and season-long control, that's Evinco, Vilify, and Rixa, powered by Bellum. For more information, visit bellumherbicide.com. That's B-E-L-L-U-M herbicide.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're broadcasting remotely today. We are in Watertown, South Dakota at Lake Area Tech. Uh, just got done with an Ag PhD collegiate agronomy workshop. Got a room full of uh, mostly college-age students here and taking some questions from the audience. Let's get right back to it. Hi, my name is Matt Gooseberg. I'm from uh, South Central Minnesota. Earlier you mentioned about planting before the temperature gets to 50 degrees. Uh, do you see a uh, difference you know in yield uh, emergence or crop emergence from when you plant before it's considered Ab warm enough absolutely that's one of the big concerns that every farmer's got i want to make sure hey if i'm spending a hundred dollars an acre on seed or maybe more i want every one of those seeds to come up and when we look at the bag like a bag of seed corn will predominantly say 95 percent germination so if you put in 30,000, you're hoping you have at least 28.5 for a final stand. Uh, actually, you're hoping you have at least 29,000 for a final stand. But it doesn't always happen that way. And we have to look at, well, what things hurt seed? Is it disease? Is it insects? Is it uh, soil crusting? There are a lot of things that can happen. And when you get out there too early in the year and it's cold, boy, that seed has to sit there that much longer. So we talked a little bit today at the meeting about what do we do in those cold soils to try and ensure that more of our seeds survive and actually thrive? Well, there are two things. So first of all, there is a cold, a saturated cold germination test that you can run. And so it's an additional test that most seed corn companies aren't running. And even the ones that are running, they aren't really publishing the results. Right. But it's something we're seeing a, a really pretty large movement of farmers doing now to test the saturated cold germ and see, okay, I know in a warm situation, I mean, a germinator, 70 degrees, ideal moisture conditions. Oh yeah. Everything wants to grow. 
But then what about this? What about if we go into cold soils and excessively wet soils? That's what we're always worried about yep. in the spring. So the first thing is testing it to see if it actually will germinate when it's cold. And number two is really the seed treatment side and then all the other things that we can do to help pop that seed out of the ground. So we talked today about seed treatments. Like in our farm, we're using 33 seed treatments on the corn, and that makes an enormous difference. And then we're also doing inferal fertilizer, insecticide, and fungicide. Because here's the thing, and what we, what we said today to everybody, so if you're listening on the radio, what we said to everybody is, look, if you look at the farm size today versus a generation or two ago, it's much, much larger. And many farmers have a lot to do. They don't have a lot of time to get it done in the northern part of the country, so they want to plant earlier. And I, we had just made the comment today, like personally on my farm, I only look at two things. I look at, is the soil fit, and have I reached my crop insurance date? Our crop insurance date's April 10th. As long as my soil's fit, I couldn't care less what the soil Soil temp is. Don't even tell me what it is. Doesn't make any difference to me. I don't care if it's 35. I don't care if it's 55. Because chances are, if I'm planting April 10th, it's gonna be 35 or 40 at some point over the next couple of weeks. So it, it's no big deal to me. But if I'm gonna plant early, I want to have seed that's got a good cold germ score, and then I want to do some of these other things. Otherwise, if I'm not willing to invest the extra money in the fertilizer, insecticide, Correct. fungicide, good seed or, treatment, or let's then just say there's you have, no way I'm planting early. Let's just say you have one field and you can plant it in a day. Well, it makes no sense then to really push it on the early side. Wait till conditions are ideal and put it in because hey, it's only going to take you one day. It's no big deal. So that's kind of to your point. But I really like where you started this too, Matt, is what is that final stand going to be? And I think when, when we talk about these things, we don't encourage farmers, all right, switch your whole farm over, plant everything in April then, and take a chance when you think it might be too cold, just do all these extra things. No, take a small amount of acres, do these extra things that we're talking about, and then walk the fields at emergence and see, all right, what do I have? Do I have some differences here? Is it taking longer for my seed to get out or could it get out faster? Do I have a 99% stand or do I have a 90% stand or, or worse? Where am I at? You just have to evaluate every one of these things that we talk about on your own operation and, and just see if they pay. But early planting But pays. for us, they have, and we're going to do that 100% of the time. Yep, absolutely. All right, uh, let's go to the next question here, right oh. back there. Hi, my name is Jackson Kerr. I'm from Russell, Minnesota, and my question is, what kind of tillage operations do you guys use, and what do you think is the most effective? Ooh, that's a good question. What, what type of tillage do we do on the farm? We've done a lot of things over the years. We've we, done everything, yeah. Yeah, we grew up, and, and uh, our grandpa was, well, both grandpas did a lot of tillage, Dad did a lot of tillage. Well, of course, everybody's dads and grandpas was, did lots of tillage. They, That's all you could do back yeah, then. So what did we do? Weeds. Yep. So we started doing some no-till about 25 years ago. We took roughly half the farm, did no-till for about oh, 10 years. And our dad hated then, that. He grew up in north-central Iowa. He was he, used to seeing fields, you know, just perfectly clean and black and level. Uh, and that's how you would start the year out. And all of a sudden, we've got last year's corn stalks sticking up through our soybeans. He just couldn't stand how that looked. He hated that until the first great big rain. And then when we went out there and we compared the no-till versus the conventional till, he goes, oh, okay, now I see. Uh, the, the erosion was so much less than the no-till. So for any of our highly erodible land, we have some rolling hills and stuff. Uh, we went no-till, and I was happy that we did. But here was the problem we ran into. In our no-till soils, it was cold, and so we weren't getting good uh, emergence. We weren't getting fast growth early in the season. The second thing is, in terms of fertilizer placement, 
what ended up happening, we did that for about 10 years, and we found that almost all our P and K and all our super important nutrients that don't move in the soil were in the top couple inches. And we go, hmm. We started digging root pits, and we realized our roots are down here. The fertility's up here. That's why our yield isn't getting to where it needs to be. How are we going to get our fertilizer down if we aren't going to do any kind of tillage? And so even today, a study just came out this week in, uh, from Nebraska showing that occasional tillage and no-till is a good thing, not a bad thing. And so the, uh, the dyed-in-the-wool no-tillers never are going to lose their minds when they see that study. But I'm just saying that nutrient stratification was the killer for us. So what we decided to do is take those no-till acres and turn them to strip-till. So we're giving you a long answer here, but we're doing roughly half the farm conventional till and half the farm strip-till. And I always tell people this, look, I don't care what you do. No-till, strip-till, conventional till, it just needs to match up to your ground and your soil types and everything. But it and, requires and different management. Everything requires different management. And if you're going to manage no-till the same as you manage conventional till, that's what a lot of guys have done. That's why they broadcast fertilizer, and that's why they're having problems. You can't do that in no-till. You cannot go broadcast P and K because it's not going to get into the, into the root zone. You've got to change your management if you're going to change your tillage practice. So anyway, I, yeah, we're fine almost whatever you want to do, but I just say this. The less tillage you do, that's going to pay better in drier conditions, and it's going to pay better when you're trying to build organic matter in the soil and also if uh, you've got lots of areas where you're really concerned about erosion. We do the conventional till that we do because we have manure. So where we're, we're using manure you know, how are you going to do that? How are you going to inject it down into the ground unless you till it in? I'm not, there's no way we're laying it on the soil surface. That is not a good thing to do. We know that. So what we try to do is kind of rotate where we're doing the manure and, you know, then maybe, oh, we might strip till here for a while. Then we might till it once. Then we might go back to strip till, something like that. So, yeah, it's hard to blend all these things together. It really is. Two things that I would say. One, be willing to change. So you get into a farming operation. You're in your 20s. Things are going to be different than when you're in your 40s or 50s. You're going to learn stuff, be willing to adjust and change. The other thing is be really cautious of the always and never statements on yep. the farm. Oh, we'll never till again. Yeah, you will. It's going to happen. Something's going to cause you to do that at some point. So don't, don't get into that kind of thing either. Oh, we always have to do this. No, you don't. We just encourage people, whatever you're going to do in that field next, hey, we're going to go in there and run the field cultivator. Before you do that, just think about why. Why are we going in there? What are our goals here? What are our alternatives? And how much does this really cost us? Uh, what are the pros and cons here? Evaluate each thing that you do on the farm. It'll force you to get better. And also talk with other farmers openly about what you're doing. You'd say, all right, well, I'd go in with a field cultivator. I guarantee you somebody within two miles of where you farm would say, well, that's the last thing I would do. I'd go in with this other tillage tool, or I'd go in and no-till, or I'd do it this different way, and it'll work out better. Listen to other people. Try some other methods as well. All right, take one more question real quick. No. We're I, know we're about, I know we're about out of time. We're right up against a commercial break. We are taking questions here following an Ag PhD collegiate agronomy workshop. We're in Watertown, South Dakota at Lake Area Tech, and it's really fun just talking with the students here because everybody's coming from a different background. There's a lot of different majors that people can take in, a lot of different areas of the farm operation that, that people I've talked to today want to get back into like the finance side of things or the equipment side of things or, or just the overall management of a farm. Uh, it's really fun for us. We'll get back to more of those questions right after this.
Bean growers continue to see yield loss from white mold across the Midwest this season. To maximize next year's crop, a white mold prevention strategy that includes Contans WG Soil Fungicide is a must for your farming operation. Applying Contans this fall to reduce the sclerotia in the soil is the most effective way to stop white mold at its source. Start a Contans white mold control strategy this fall or pay for it later in lost yield. When it comes to my weed control, I know a head start can go a long way. That's why I spray early, so I can keep control all season long with a Roundup Ready Extend Crop System, the system that makes the difference. This is my field. Choose the Roundup Ready Extend Crop System for control of more weeds than any other soybean system. Featuring Extendamax herbicide with vapor grip technology to manage tough-to-control weeds, including up to 14 days of soil activity, along with the field-proven performance of Roundup Ready to Extend soybeans. Now you have the right tools to extend your weed control and extend your yield with the system that makes the difference. Learn how you can put the system to work in your field when you visit RoundupReadyExtend.com. Extendamax is a restricted-use pesticide. Performance may vary. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Check local regulations for specific requirements in your state. Your grain bin fans can cost you a lot. High electric bills from running when conditions are not ideal, shrinkage from overdried grain, and spoiled grain all take money out of your pocket. With the STEPS GMS app temperature humidity switch, get your bin fans to start making you money. Only run vans when the conditions are right. Eliminate shrink and spoilage in your bins. Deliver grain in top condition at market moisture. When every dollar counts, you need Steps GMS. Contact us today at stepsgms.com. You know a healthy crop is required for your best results. Simply put, balanced crop nutrition pays. Agri-liquid fertilizers have the research, technology, and products to deliver those results. We also have an outstanding team of field agronomists ready to help you with your fertility decisions. AgriLiquid can help you maximize your yield potential effectively and economically. Visit agriliquid.com to find a dealer near you. White mold and sudden death syndrome are two of the most important fungal diseases in soybean production today. But did you know 40 to 50 million acres in the north central region are affected annually? When every season has different disease challenges, the question becomes how can you ensure the best start for your soybeans no matter what? The answer is Heads Up Seed Treatment. Trusted by growers across the Midwest, Heads Up offers a new mode of action to prime your beans to help fight fungal disease. For more information, visit HeadsUpST.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're taking questions from our audience here at Lake Area Tech in Watertown, South Dakota, following an Ag PhD Collegiate Agronomy Workshop. Uh, I think, is this question up next? Right over here. I'm Grant. I'm here from Watertown. And earlier, I mean, later in the presentation, you guys were talking about runoff and erosion. There's this big deal going on around Compesca and Pelican around here with the big blue-green algae deal. Yes. And everyone was pointing fingers at the ag industry saying it's all our fault. What's your guys' take on the blue-green algae deal? Well, first of all, I haven't studied that specific case, but it just reminds me of a few years ago out in Lake Erie where everybody was 
saying, oh, agriculture is totally to blame for this algae. And you could see it on the satellite imagery even for Lake Erie. But when you looked at it, you go, hey, wait a second. Isn't this right by uh, the, the town there? Was it Toledo? Uh, the, 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 the town on the east side of Lake Erie. And I, I think it was Toledo. Anyway, whatever town it is, I can look that up. But the point is, I go, wait a second here. That, the algae is right around the town. And it just so happened that the week that came out, I was doing a speaking appearance in southern Michigan. And I happened to talk to somebody because the question even came up to me right then. And I had a guy come up afterwards and he goes, hey, I just want you to know uh, this. He goes, have you ever taken a little uh, boat ride on Lake Erie? And I said, no, I haven't. And he goes, I said, why, why do you ask? And he goes, well, you should, because everybody's talking about this whole algae deal. But, you know, if you take a little boat ride all along that western shore, you'll find great big pipes coming right from the town, going right into the lake. He said, I don't think it's an ag problem. I think it's a city problem, and they just like to push the blame off on us. Now, it's the same kind of thing when you start talking about any of these lakes. If there are lake cabins around there, what are all the people uh, doing right there? Where does their sewage go? In a lot of cases, it goes right to the lake. Where does uh, any of their fertilizer go? What, what do they do for fertilizer? We just talked about all day, we talked about many times, phosphorus. What should you not do with phosphorus? Lay it on the soil surface. What do people do when they fertilize their lawn? They lay it on the soil surface. So it's literally sitting there on the soil and will be for years. And then they get a big rain. And where's the rain go? Runs right down to the lake. That phosphorus is going right to the lake. So it's most of the time, it's the people that live right around the lake or do anything right around the lake that end up contaminating the now lake. Now that said, another good source of phosphorus is erosion. And when you think about rivers and streams, where do they go? Well, they wind. And yep. a lot of times they'll eat into the shores and eat into the banks, and they change course over the time. I mean, you look back over 100 years of history and you see big rivers like the Mississippi will change course a mile or more in some cases well, anytime you have that, you've got dirt that's falling into the river, and that's going to lead and to And organic phosphorus. matter and, sure. yeah, all the stuff that's th sure. that so goes in So not that saying dirt. that farmers have zero responsibility. Of course there's some responsibility because we've got to manage the land that, that we're in charge of. But are we the primary cause of the problem? In most cases, no. Yep, but the main reason why there's algae in the lakes, the number one limiting factor for that is phosphorus. So we have to figure out how do we prevent phosphorus from going in there. So we say, all right, let's uh, take care of the sewage issue. Let's make sure people around the lake aren't fertilizing with phosphorus. And then for us as farmers, if we do no-till or very, very, very reduced tillage around there so we don't have erosion, we're not going to end up with the phosphorus getting in there because it's not going to get there from leaching. It's not going to get there from tile lines. Right, take another question here. Uh, I'm Jared Christensen from Tyler, Minnesota. Uh, you guys seemed big proponents of putting in tile yourself. I was just wondering how big of tile line can you pull behind your plow? Eight-inch eight tile lines. So, yeah, you can hire somebody to do this stuff. We just, one of the big things, especially for the young people involved in agriculture, you've got to figure out how you're going to pay your way in the farm. Because for many of you, your parents are going to say, eh, I don't know if we can afford to have you come back.
Well, if there's something you could bring to the table where it's doing it yourself, and that's what our dad always taught us, is try to find these jobs you can do yourself on your farm rather than hiring somebody else to do it. Become the expert in that. It's not that tough. You can do it. So that's the reason why we talk about that so much. But we're perfectly fine. If anybody wants to go hire it done, that you, you can absolutely do that. Yeah, thanks for the question. Let's take another one over here. I'm Ryan Feller. I'm from uh, Okaboji, Iowa, and I'm just wondering, after you put... Uh, oh, sure. Now we get the lake questions coming, right? <laughs> no. After you put that much money into tile, yep. how long do you expect it to last before you're putting more money into it? Most of the time, w with a lot of these systems out there and the way we can put tile in now, I would say we're talking 30 to 50 years before we have to do a whole lot for any kind of repairs or anything like that. It's certainly possible for it to last a lot longer than that. And it's also possible if you d do something wrong in your installation, or let's say uh, somebody screws up and does some digging around you, you have some rodents that get in there. I mean, something could go wrong. You make a connection that's bad, or maybe you, you, you screw up and you happen to stretch the tile in a spot. You'll find that spot usually pretty fast. And so you just go out there and you fix it. It's no big deal. But yeah, most of the time it's going to last a really long time. Yeah, the, the great thing now with the, uh, the guidance systems where you can use sub-inch sub accurate GPS to lay that tile in, we don't see nearly as many of the, the little bumps, uh, peaks, and valleys in tile lines that, that we used to see, but it's certainly something you want to be really careful about as you're doing install, and you're also going to have to be really careful about what the depth is that you've got that tile in, so you make sure there's plenty of depth that large equipment can run over the when top. When we teach tiling safely. installation, we talk to about what's your slope and what do you have for fine sand and silt? So stuff that can get in and fill up that line. So if you can get the right amount of slope, and in some cases you have to create your own slope, go extra deep, have a lift station, pump it back up and out, but then that allows that tile line to last for that many more years. And then the, the last thing that I'll throw out is you got to be careful about wherever there's going to be permanent grass. So if you're getting near a grass waterway or a ditch or something like that, then you're going to have to have solid tile there. Otherwise, yeah, we've had it where, and we purposely did it just to see how long it would take. But even after one year out in pasture ground with tile relatively shallow, probably two and a half feet, just to see if it would fill in. Oh, man, in just one year, those grass roots filled that in pretty well. Well, what's going to happen then? The soil starts catching on that grass, and now, it, it I mean, it's not going to take very long, and that's going to fill in. So we just got to be careful about where we're putting it and how we're using it. All right, got one on the way back here. My name's Molly Watt. I'm from Esteline, South Dakota. And I just have a question about the nitrogen to sulfur ratio. Um, I've read a couple different articles, and it varies from like 20 to 15 to 10 to 1. So I'm just wondering what the optimum nitrogen to sulfur you know what? ratio is. Farmers, farmers around the world are wondering that question too. They're wondering what the answer is to that and how do we dial it in. I, I was talking to a really super high yielding grower, a yield champ, and I said, what do you think about that nitrogen to sulfur ratio? And he had made the comment that on their farm, they, they kept uh, narrowing that up all the time. And he said, you know, the more sulfur we're putting on, the more benefit we seem to be getting. It, it's certainly something that's pretty easy to do a study on on your own farm as far as uh, checking some different rates. I, I know back, uh, boy, 10, 15 years ago, uh, at Southern Illinois University, I know Brian Young was talking about this, that they had done an eight to one ratio with nitrogen and sulfur, and they were finding that the sulfur was acting a little bit like a nitrogen stabilizer for them, that they were, were able yep. to hold that nitrogen in the soil a little bit better when they had that ratio just right like that. 
I don't know what the right one is, but I do know this, that nitrogen and sulfur move very similarly in the soil. They both can move around pretty easily in the soil. And more times than not, we're seeing farmers applying both at the same time with the same application method. And yeah, that, that ratio, uh, I guess you can look in the Ag PhD fertilizer removal app to see what your crop actually needs, but it needs a lot of pounds of of sulfur. Both. It's probably a 10 to 1 ratio or maybe even a little less. Yep. On your screen here, I pulled up carbon to nitrogen ratio also because the more carbon that's out there, the more tie up there's going to be of nitrogen, especially maybe not so much of sulfur. So where I'm going with this is let's say that I was in continuous corn. I want to get more nitrogen out there for the amount of sulfur that I'm putting out as opposed to maybe if I was following soybeans. So anyway, yeah, they're both tremendously important nutrients. We're not maybe necessarily as worried about an exact ratio or anything else we are worried about let's make sure that we're sufficient all the way along throughout the season thanks for all the questions that we're getting so far i know we got a few more questions to get to here coming up right after this break broadcasting live following an ag phd collegiate agronomy workshop in watertown south dakota and we'll be right back after this Your land is a legacy, a challenge from those who tended it before you to build on their foundations. At Corteva AgriScience, we understand what it means to be the stewards of a legacy. We embrace the challenge of building on the foundation of Dow AgroSciences to maintain your trust, to bring new solutions, to help you care for your land. See how we can help build your legacy at rangeandpasture.com. We know balanced crop nutrition pays. AgriLiquid has the research, technology, and products you need to grow a great crop. Plus the expertise to give you a recommendation based on your soils, your fields, and your goals. AgriLiquid has the phosphorus, potassium, and micronutrient products necessary to deliver the best results from a solid fertility program. Visit agriliquid.com to find a dealer near you. Every farmer knows that in order to be profitable, you need to maximize the return on your crop input investments. Hi, I'm Scott Harms, an agrist specialist with Grain PhD. Without an effective and flexible strategy, your grain marketing plan gets stuck in the mud. With Grain PhD, you get the clarity and guidance a solid marketing plan needs. Our free GrainBridge software simplifies your cost-profit analysis, and our risk specialists are here to help you develop your plan. Sign up today at GrainPhD.com. The Grain Temp Guard from Farm Shop MFG has helped farmers keep their bushels safe from spoilage and shrinkage loss in bins all across the country. And this low-cost solution just became even more affordable. Farm Shop MFG is offering a $100 factory rebate on all Grain Temp Guard bin monitoring systems. This offer is available for a limited time only, so take advantage of this program now to upgrade your bins and protect your crop investments. For more information, visit farmshopmfg.com. Now that harvest is in the books, it's time to start thinking about your plan for the next crop. Using a pre-emerge herbicide in your soybeans is the best agronomic choice you can make to ensure control of tough weeds and grasses before they wreck the rest of your season. Authority brand herbicides from FMC keep your soybean fields clean from the start. 
Research trials have shown that applying a pre-emerge herbicide at planting can preserve up to 20 bushels or more of yield potential. With multiple options to fit your soil types, tillage practices, and weed management needs, Authority brand herbicides deliver the pre-emerge power to fight glyphosate-resistant weeds before they take root. How do they do it? Two modes of action keep resistance in check. Rule your fields with dual modes of action. It's not too late. Visit your FMC retailer or fmcagus.com to learn more. Always read and follow label directions, restrictions, and precautions for use. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting live from Watertown, South Dakota, following an Ag PhD Collegiate Agronomy Workshop. We're taking questions here from the participants today, and let's get right back to it. My name is Jennifer Hansen. I'm from Britain, South Dakota. Um, I know you guys didn't mention this in the PowerPoint or whatever, but um, what's your guys' take on irrigation, and could you use that to help you know, take care of insects? Oh, that's, that's a good question. And, you know, I think about South Dakota, and this seems to be an untapped resource. We've got some irrigation in our state, definitely room for more in certain areas of the state, too. And, Brian, when we talk to the world record corn grower, he's like, man, how do you guys do this without irrigation out there? You're, you're in some country that can get pretty dry at times. Irrigation would certainly give us some options. Well, we have tremendous humidity and we have super heavy soil. Around Britain, you've got some sand. And so now, and as you go north, there's basically a belt there all the way up through oaks and everything where there's sand, and so there is some irrigation. I would say this, too. I want you to keep in mind, well, you hear in all the media about, oh, we've got to conserve water, and, you know, we've got to worry about our water resources. Around here, that's nonsense, okay? We don't need to conserve water. We need to use more. Our aquifers, seriously, are growing in this region of the country, not shrinking. Now, if you're almost anywhere else in the United States, it's the opposite but not in the, in the upper Midwestern United States. We have excess water. We can use plenty. So water's cheap. It's really good. I don't have any issue with that at all. It's just you got to look at what type of soil do I have. And then you got to be careful about what you're irrigating and when. So here's my point. If you've got varying soil types, let's say your cation exchange capacity ranges from 5 to 15 in the same field, well, obviously the 15 is going to hold a whole bunch of water, and it doesn't need the irrigation as quick. And so... There used to not be nearly as many people wanting to do irrigation because they, they had a hard time dialing that in. Well, today we can really dial it in with precision ag. And, yeah, we love irrigation. It's awesome. It's just we don't talk about it much, and we, we hadn't planned to talk about it today because we're in an area of the country that there's just not a lot. Uh, there aren't a lot of people who are irrigating primarily because we have such tremendously heavy soil. And a couple of things now, back to your point about chemigation. Could you control insects through the pivot? Could you add fertility Absolutely. through the pivot? Absolutely. And this is one of those things where uh, you can set something to run and you don't have to drive over the field. That's awesome because you think about high clearance sprayers, that's wonderful, but what about when corn's 12 feet tall? Eh, you aren't going to quite get through that, and now all of a sudden you got to hire a plane to come in, and can you get there timely, and can you get good coverage? You're going to get great coverage if you're putting thousands of gallons of, of water on with that pivot. Yeah, and so Darren mentioned the fertility thing also. Yeah, we can, can control bugs that way, and, and we really like doing that, but the fertility is probably the bigger piece because think about this. We talked today about cation exchange capacity. Your soil can only hold so much nitrogen, so if you've got light soil, and that's probably why you want to irrigate in the first place, 
Well, if you put very much nitrogen on, you're in trouble. It's going to end up down in the in the water. So you've got to continue putting nitrogen on all the time. And, and it's exactly and what, you what do folks it. are doing. A lot of times yep. guys are putting on 20 or 30 pounds per acre of nitrogen each or time more. they're going around with yep. that pivot. And, yeah, just depending on how many times you're going to irrigate to, to keep that crop going and to keep putting fertility out as the plant's using it, it's a very efficient way to do it. The leachable nutrients, so nitrate, sulfate, boron, those are the big ones, and those are the ones that should be out there on a regular basis. But, yep, works awesome. awesome. All right, take All right. another question back here. Hi, I'm Maddie Delmeyer. I'm from Ellsworth, Minnesota. Uh, my question is, what do you do for row spacing when you're planting? And will you change it this year because of how wet it was last year? Well, the problem with changing row spacings for us is it's quite expensive, so we'd have to change equipment. For we anybody. We yeah. aren't really set up with a planter we can do adjusting on. Uh, so we're in 30-inch rows. We plan to stay the same way. Uh, I would say if we were in narrower rows than that, if we are in 15s, we may have considered switching to 30s this year, coming off the last two years with bad white mold Why? problems and soybeans. Well, that's soybeans, but how about corn? I mean, corn, here, here's the whole thing. When you go to narrower rows, there are advantages. The biggest advantage is you're going to trap more moisture there. And you're going to canopy quicker. Yep. And, and the weed control is another big advantage exactly. of narrow rows. But the big disadvantage to narrow rows is now you don't have as much air movement through there, not as much sunlight hitting the ground, and now we have to worry a lot more about disease. Plus so you variety have selection is a much more important thing. Plus you've got to have narrower tires, and that's another concern. I mean, you can still get around this. You can have taller wheels or something like that to spread out. Or you could have tram lines. Water tram lines where literally it would skip so you'd have a 30 inch row everywhere else it's 15 except for where your sprayer is going to run so there are ways to do these things but yeah we're 30 inch on corn and beans and the primary reason on beans we've gone away from 10 inch or 15 inch rows is for white mold just so we can get more air moving through because as we've done better and better with our fertility i mean literally our beans are shoulder high or more well when they're that tall I mean, that's that's a lot. So we're already shading the row well. Everything is fine that way. But typically, as the further north you go, the more narrow rows seem to pay just because we have a shorter growing season. Uh, but yeah, I, I would say, too, because a lot of people say, oh, I need to go to narrow rows in corn. I go, what are the world record guys doing? Well, they're 30 inch rows. So apparently, 30 intros aren't that yeah, there's bad. Still, still some more yield we could get in a 30, <laughs> that's for sure. Yep. Hey, thanks for the question. Let's take another one here. Uh, Jacob Ulmer from Lemoore, North Dakota. Um, going off the row spacings, yep. what is your opinions on that 60-inch corn? Uh, well, to, to put a cover crop in between, is that what you're getting at, some of that? Correct. You know, we just were talking about this the other day on the radio that, was that somebody was looking at, at tonnage. And there was a study that they saw they could get more forage tons. They couldn't get as much yield for corn. A lot of the yield data was 20, 25 bushel less on corn. But they were getting good tonnage. And if you were feeding livestock and you worked something else in there that was a cover crop that would add nutritional benefit in that ration and you could get more tons, I think that would be a pretty interesting concept. Uh, if you're just going for corn yield, though, it's not the way to go. Now, West River, South Dakota, there were some studies, I think SDSU was involved with a number of years back, where they were trying 30-inch rows versus 60-inch rows versus, I think, even 120-inch rows or something like that. And when it was super dry, 
that helped them conserve moisture a little bit and they they did good in that kind of situation but for most people unless you're looking at a tonnage situation to feed livestock if it's just a corn yield situation i don't like it i don't like it but it is interesting and i love that people are willing to try that and there are a lot of studies out there about and and farmers that are doing this work of should i go one pass with my planter with corn, next pass with soybeans, or two passes of corn, one pass of soybeans. Is there something else I could do slightly different with the same equipment I've got to make more money? That's great. Do some of that work yourself. I encourage all you guys, do some of that stuff yourself. Just do it on a small scale. Then, then you don't have big problems you have to deal with, and, and it isn't something that costs you a lot of money. And if you farm with your brother, I'd advise you do it on his ground. That way, in case it doesn't work out, it's no big deal. All right. We we always like to tease each other a little bit. Brian always says, you know, if there's a weed problem, uh, that's probably because Darren is farming the ground. And I say, no, that's a good opportunity to cash rent that ground for top dollar out to your brother. All right. Next question. My name is Grant Stoick from here in Watertown. And I was wondering, what's your opinion on the new Enlist soybeans? Okay, you know, the Enlist 3 soybeans are getting a lot of attention. They've got tolerance to Liberty or Glufosinate, tolerance to Roundup or Glyphosate, and also tolerance to the new 2,4-D product Enlist. So you've got three different uh, modes of action that you could spray over the top that this, these soybeans are tolerant to. I think they're great. I think the yield potential is, is as good as anything else out there. And if, if those are herbicides that help you manage your weeds, I think it's great. There's a lot of different ways you can go now in soybeans. I love the Extend soybeans. I will like them even more when Extend Flex comes out. Hopefully later this spring that'll get a label. Then you could spray Dicamba, Roundup, or Liberty on top of those beans. And I think adding this Dicamba or adding the Enlist or the 240 that you mentioned, it's a powerful weed control tool. We really like it. But it's nice being able to have Liberty late in the season. And then the other one that we like is the LLGT27, mainly for carryover and HPPDs. Too many people are using things like Acuron, Acuron Flexi, uh, Resicor at very high rates. And I look at, man, do you realize how much HPPD is in there? And in some cases, people are even doubling it up. They're using a pre and a post, and it's just too much. Yep, lots of good options out there. And the new Enlist uh, beans, I, I think they're a good option for many growers. We'll get back to more questions from our audience here right after this. Stay tuned. What do you think of when you hear Palmer Amaranth or Water Hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, Fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like water hemp and Palmer Amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of Fierce Herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put Fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. Hey Adam, new drone? Not just any drone. I mounted a laser on it to take out weeds. Look out for that tree! In the power lines! Oh, it's in for the house. There's a simpler way to protect spring wheat from weeds. Perfect Match Herbicide. The broadest spectrum weed and grass control in one product. Learn more at perfectmatchherbicide.com. Always read and follow label directions. The laser. You deserve to have a building that will last for generations. With more than 110 years of experience and thousands of satisfied customers, Morton Buildings is the industry leader you can trust. 
Unlike other construction companies, you work with Morton Building's craftsmen from conception to completion. There's no better time to buy. Lock in your new building for 2020 today. Contact your local Morton sales office or visit mortonbuildings.com. Revitech fungicide from BASF has been specifically developed for the selective soybean grower who doesn't compromise. If you think good is good enough, if you're okay with just achieving rather than overachieving, if average is your goal, this is not the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide, brand new chemistry, three no excuse modes of action, zero modes of compromise. Sounds like the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide from BASF, that's smart. Always read and follow label directions. How much yield did you lose the moment you planted your seed? Introducing the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Designed and built by a farmer tired of seeing yield loss from poor stands, the Germinator gives your crop the strong start it needs for maximum yield. Visit farmshopmfg.com. Increase your productivity with Hypro's Dual React Control System. The dual nozzle body design allows you to drive at the speed you want while maintaining the rate and droplet size you need. Hypro, helping you spray better. Find your full potential and increase your bottom line with branded generic herbicides from Atticus LLC. Tough broadleaf weeds are a hassle, but they're no match for Cavallo from Atticus. Cavallo delivers fast, contact, and residual control so your corn, soybean, and sorghum crops can thrive. Growers across the region count on Atticus for relevant and reliable products that deliver results every time. Ask your local retailer about Atticus products and visit AtticusLLC.com to learn more. For value-based solutions you can trust, turn to Atticus. Always read and follow label instructions. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're broadcasting live from Watertown, South Dakota. We've been taking questions from the audience here after the Ag PhD Collegiate Agronomy Workshop. Let's get right back to it, and we'll, we'll take another question here. Hi, I'm Manny Albright from D. Smith, South Dakota, and I was just wondering, for this area, what would you suggest for cover crops to help with soil structure? Well, I like corn the best. That's my favorite. And followed by soybeans. That would be my next favorite. Uh, you know, the, I'm being a little bit of a smart aleck here. Uh, but the challenge that we've got, and here's the fun thing, and I think you guys are going to be the ones that, that figure it out, is how do, we, how do we get a good cover crop growing when we've got a short growing season? So if we're harvesting in October, we're out of heat, we're out of growing days, we don't have much time. So we've got to get a crop established earlier in the season. Maybe that's August. I, maybe it's even in the spring. I don't think we have all the answers on that as to as to make this work just perfectly in, in corn especially, just because there isn't much growing season that we don't have something out there that's alive. When we look at wheat acres, though, this is a real area of opportunity in this geography. If you've got wheat in the rotation or silage corn, oh, man, there's still plenty of growing season left to really make an impact with a cover crop and, uh, and get some benefits for your soils. So I just, for everybody that's here with us today uh, live, I put up potential benefits to cover crops, some of the things that cover crops can do for you. But the other thing is there are also a number of disadvantages to cover crops. So we've got to be a little bit careful about what we are going to pick for our cropping mix. And the first thing that I would say when we think about what we don't want to do is how are we going to kill that when it becomes a weed next year? 
So if it would happen to go to seed, how do we control that in whatever crop that we're going to raise? So be thinking about that. And then one of the other big things is thinking about how do we support the beneficial soil life in our ground so we have a good crop next year. Just for example, a lot of people will talk about turnips and radishes. Okay, that's great to talk about, but did you know that radishes don't support mycorrhiza fungi? So in other words, you will have fallow syndrome the very next year in your corn if all you raised one year was radishes. That's a real problem. So what we usually talk to people about, just to be on the safe side, is raise a cover crop blend. Generally speaking, we would tell you put a grass out there, put a legume out there, and then also maybe put something like a turnip or radish in there too. So you have some, the main reason why people have that is to bust up compaction. So ideally, I'd say most people are raising like a rye, a winter rye or something, uh, maybe even an annual rye. And then beyond that, in terms of the legume, what you're going to pick, I don't care. In our case, sometimes we've even gone soybeans, but you have to think about, well, maybe we don't want to have soybeans because that would be the same as, you know, now all of a sudden we might have more cyst nematode or any disease that, you know, and I, I think the big thing is just, I like the blend idea of having several different species. And the reason that I think of besides what you've mentioned is just herbicide tolerance. So most farmers are using some herbicide out there and we get the question all the time. All right, it's June. Here's all the things I did for herbicides. Will any of those impact my cover crop? Uh, yeah, some of them might. That's why we like planting different species because hopefully, all right, yeah, it may have dinged the radishes a little bit, but it didn't hurt the turnips and it didn't hurt the rye. So you're still going to have great cover out there and great root growth and get the benefits that you're trying to get. I, I think if you, you're taking a lot of risk if you're just planting one single species that way too. All right, we got uh, just a little bit of time left. So if you have a question, just raise your hand. We'll come around to you with the mic. But just to kind of finish up on that too, Darren, you, you, you said something about herbicides. And that's probably the number one question we get with cover crops in this region of the country is, well, is my soil residual herbicide going to hurt my cover crop? And should I use a different soil residual herbicide because I want to plant this cover crop over here? And I always tell people, let's not forget, what's our goal here on the farm again? It's to make money. Is a cover crop make you any money? No. What makes you money? The crop. So let's focus on the crop first. We'll tailor the, the cover crop later to whatever we had to use in order to get the best crop over here and make the most money. But yeah, what Darren said earlier, I agree with 100%. Corn, soybeans around here, there's no chance to raise any cover crops. And, and it got brought up well, earlier, how about it do these 60-inch rows or something? We're just not believers in that either. You're not going to end up with as many total dollars just, and as much You tonnage. just have to add up what the dollars are going to be. And yep. maybe it's over several years. And I like how, how you approach that question of, I want to help my soil out, and I want to help these soil microbes out, and I want to prevent erosion, and those things are great. And if we can keep something living in our field as long as we possibly can through the growing season, that's the important thing. I, I guess what we're saying is not to not to shoot anything down, saying, oh, just yep. can't do it, you just can't do it. I think you can. We just haven't figured out how to make it work because corn and soybeans are taking up almost all of the good days in the season. There aren't many left. So yeah, but what's that our is overall, your cover crop. I know, yeah. but what's our overall purpose? We want to have something living in the field through the whole season. Maybe we're doing that in some cases with this full season are. corn. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mentioned this earlier today, but we have planted many times where there is still frost in the ground. And the first time that we did it, I remember talking to my dad and he's like, I think you're nuts. And I go, I don't care. I'm doing it anyway, because we got stuff to do and I want to see, uh, we'll, we'll prove it out. If it doesn't work, it's only a few acres and it worked great. And so we've continued to do that. So literally we're planting and the, no, the frost isn't even fully out of the ground. And I don't know about any of you in the room, but we were harvesting when snow was flying this year. Okay. So there was zero extra days zero extra days that's, we could have had anything growing on that ground that's fair this year but i would say Most the other years. part the other part of your story i like this uh, and here's here's one of the ways that our dad was pretty successful is he let us make some decisions probably before we were even ready probably a little too young that doesn't always happen a lot of times people want to hold those decision making powers themselves uh, i know people that are 50 years old that eh, we still got to ask dad or we still got to ask mom about buying that new tractor. And, you know, you, you got to turn the reins over at some point. And our dad's philosophy was, look, I'm going to, I'm going to let you guys make decisions early, but if you make a mistake, you got to learn from it. I'll, I'll, I'm good with it happening one time. Everybody's going to make mistakes. Just don't make that same mistake over and over again, or we've got a problem. And the other thing that dad would say sometimes to his friends and maybe not necessarily for Brian and me to hear, it's like, yeah, I got to let those guys make decisions now while I'm still young enough to step back in if I need to and take, take back over. But, uh, it, it really worked out well. We, we, uh, definitely had the room and the freedom to do things a little different. And I hope that happens for everyone in the room as well, that whatever, whether you go back to the farm or, or get into uh, an ag industry or something different, I hope you have the opportunity and the freedom to make a few mistakes and, and try a few things different because you might figure out an even better, I know you'll figure out an even better way than what we're doing things. And you're going to take yields even further than we will. I'll just tell you, the first day that I went to college, what my dad told me, he said, Brian, you're going to college now, and you think that when you come back four years from now, you're going to be all smart. You're not going to be. He said, you're going to college for one reason, to learn how to learn. And at the time, I'm like, whatever, dad, come on. You know, I'm going to learn a bunch of stuff. And here I am 30 years, after, 30 years later after getting done with college, and there isn't much that I can remember that I actually use from college. But it did teach me a lot of things and help me progress over the years. But the point is, 30 years from now, things are going to change. We have to keep learning all the time. And the number one reason that you're here is to learn how to do that. Even like we talked today, I gave you a couple of tips on, hey, if you're ever making a presentation, do this. Hey, if you're taking notes, make sure that you're scanning them. Make, do this. Pick up things all the time. Every day, you've got to be a lifelong learner, that's, especially when you're in agriculture. That's the key. And I, that's why I think it's so important to get education after high school if you possibly can. If you can afford it, if there's any way you can do it, I strongly recommend it because there's so many things that you're going to learn in these years from 18 to 22 or 24 or whatever uh, are really important. They're, they're really formative years for you in, in hey, here's how I'm going to go about doing things. Here's how I'm, like you say, becoming a lifelong learner. Because even, as Brian mentioned, 30 years after college, you're still learning every day. And it's amazing to us at a lot of the agronomy workshops that we do, We've got farmers that are there in their late 60s, 70s, even 80s that are still coming to learn more, and, and they know that's how they're continuing to improve things in their operations. 
Well, I've certainly had fun here in Watertown. A great chance to meet a lot of students and a lot of the future of agriculture. Really appreciate all the questions that we got here. And this is our last collegiate agronomy workshop for this year, but we certainly look forward to doing more of these in the future. Yep, and I would encourage you to check out agphd.com. We've got some upcoming sessions with uh, Neil Kinsey. We've got our Ag PhD field day. Got a lot of other stuff for you there as well. Thanks to you at home for listening. We really appreciate that. Please join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.